So let's talk about the birthday cake elephant in the room. <laughs> let's talk about the elephant lamp in the room. Bro. I pulled on the trunk and the light didn't come out, man. I mean, a lot of bullshit came out. But, but not the light. To let people wow. who are listening to this in on a secret, I legit never take notes for any of these movies at all. I had to record how many fuck up things from 16 Candles I was able to catch. I <laughs> made my friend Anders' night by just yelling at him over text the whole time I was watching this movie. What was the highlight of the text exchange or the text dump? Text dump is is probably pretty accurate. I believe uh, at one point I said it's nauseating that Jake Ryan just offered his girlfriend up as prey and somehow was attractive while doing it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing to keep from crying. <laughs> I know, same. Hang on, let me just like scroll up through the goods. Oh, okay, here we go. Wow, I think this one gif might be better than the movie. Yup. What gif? You didn't. Yeah. It's it's a it's a sixteen candles gif. I'll post it to Twitter so okay. y'all can can watch at home. I am ten minutes in and my body is clenched. <laughs> oh wow, some racism. <laughs> gotta gotta throw the change up. <laughs> oh they're... neat! Wow, the sister's a bitch too. Oh, they're playing turning Japanese. That's a great song. Oh wait, that's really problematic now that they've added context. The gongs weren't enough every time. Uh, yeah. Wow, there has been exactly one touching scene in this movie. It's this scene with the dad. Forget what? Who's Jake? He's a boy, Daddy. It's nothing. Okay, just forget it, please. Go on, Sam. We're not communicating. It's extremely embarrassing, okay? What's embarrassing? Sitting in the dark with your dad telling him about your love life. I'm afraid you lost me again, Sam. Jake is a senior, and he's beautiful and perfect. I like him a real lot, and he doesn't like me, okay? Oh. And he's got this incredible girlfriend. I'm just this ridiculous dork that's falling around like a puppy. Why do you think you're a dork? I don't think you're a dork. I don't think Mom thinks you're a dork. Mike thinks I'm a dork. Mike is a dork. Well, so am I. Well, if it's any consolation, I love you. And if this guy can't see in you all the beautiful and wonderful things that I see, then he's got the problem. Wow. Well, yeah. That was that, that was the was only legit. genuinely good scene, I think, in this entire movie that had no problematic content in it now. Oh, wow. We get a fourth wall break mid-date rape. <laughs> Look, guys. <laughs> this is cool. This is the 80s. I mean, if it counts for anything it was a full hour before we got to them saying the r word i mean bro so here's one exchange that completely blew my top it was in the beginning there were two exchanges in the beginning that were that were wild for numerous reasons it was one when uh, molly ringwell was talking to her best friend through the hallways and they were kind of talking about you know what her dream gift would be and since 
is about 12. I've been looking forward to my sweet 16. You know, a big party, a band, tons of people, and a big Trans Am in the driveway with a ribbon around it, and some incredibly gorgeous guy that you meet like in France. You do it on a cloud without getting pregnant or herpes. I don't need the cloud. I'm just a pink Trans Am and the guy, right? A black one. A black guy? A black Trans Am, a pink guy. <laughs> and the look on her face to think that Molly Ringwall would do a, a black person. <laughs> I, I would feel remiss if I didn't point out that there were no black people in these movies that oh were my God. that had lines. It was like all blurs. It was black blurs running through the screen. Like they were very uh, in the, the background. The valet's friend in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I believe, was the only black guy that was on screen more than once in, in a movie. Oh yeah, in all three of these movies. He's the only one that said two words to the camera and here here's the wild exchange i didn't even get to the wild exchange it's when jake and his friend are doing pull-ups and this oh this, my god this oh jake, no like the guy well one this guy is like at least like 25 roided out in this movie being a high school senior but they're talking about him one day molly ringwald and he says she looks at me like she's in love with me Jake, she's a child. She's a child. And Jake's response? So? So what are you going to do with her? She's obviously too young to party serious. <laughs> I mean, she's turning 16. <laughs> Just the dialogue. Jake, she's also, a this child. All took so? place, this all took place over two days, which is like so much worse who knows what can happen he, he on a needs Friday a child for his serious love now that he's had a woman for his sex speaking of high school i didn't even get to the naked high school girl taking oh, yeah. a shower with the with the <laughs> boing noise bro. that they play over it bro this movie's so problematic oh my god oh pretty sure that the boing was meant to insinuate like busting out of a bra somebody busting out of something man bro the chinese kid he was just we can't not... we can't add any boings until like maybe ever i guess we maybe no, can't this is high talking about kids. the car i guess i don't know because oh a... that car that was really another another ferrari big ferrari talk on the we should do this again sometime podcast family business i know the chinese dude had literally is he Chinese? No... Is he canonically Chinese? Did I miss like a throwaway line where they're like, he's here from China? Well, At one point, they used music that implied that he was Thai, and they also used music that implied he was Japanese. Now, I understand that it's, it's 1983 or whatever, and everyone with eyes different than you looks the same, I guess. But like, what? There's only two reasons why I thought he was Chinese. In the beginning, they give him res- some respect and say he's from China, but then there's a handful of times they call him a Chinaman. <laughs> oh, oh yeah! Oh my God, this movie's so sick! God damn! Oh man, this movie's fucking rough, man. Hey Howard, there's your Chinaman. Oh, thanks, Fred. Hi, Doc. Ooh. If you guys couldn't tell, we're covering John Hughes. Oh, yeah. I kind of <laughs> forgot to intro that at all. I mean, it's... Well, chicka, chicka. 
thing in this whole movie. Oh no. Other than them calling him Chinaman. Did you did you notice and the, this? Go- and the gongs? And the gongs. Did you notice when they were eating dinner, he used two forks like chopsticks? I did, yeah. Oh my god. Damn. Not only is he a Chinaman, he's a buffoon too. Like <laughs> well, let's let's not forget that like they were like praising him because he knew how to like do their manual labor. Oh yeah, he was their slave. And, like, that's like <laughs> they clearly thought they're like, Yeah, he like does all our chores and we give him a place to live. That should be enough for him. Bro, these white people are slaves. At least at least he like crashes their car and like shows up hungover and And then she he gets assaulted for his troubles. He gets assaulted for living his life. Yeah, they they do kick him like a lot. Bro. He cut away before they call I him. I mean, like, they also grab he also spirit. apparently grabbed Jake's nuts, which is like <laughs> yeah. a choice. Oh yeah, the bad Asian stereotype of is this bad Asian bi- drivers. Is this the bisexual representation that America needed in 1983? Long duck dong grabbing Jake Ryan's nuts. What's happening, hot stuff? Are, are you sure the fact that his name is Long Duck Dong is not the most racist part of this movie? Because. That might also be pretty up there. I'll be that's, honest. Yeah, that's pretty up there, man. Oof. Oh, damn. So I think the final four is either the racist name, him being an Asian slave, him getting called Chinaman, and as the a while, chopsticks. The chopsticks. Damn, the chopsticks are so. You know why? I. You know why? We're I just have having a, a March Madness bracket. This started as a final four. We're at six. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? That has to get my vote for the most racist thing with the chopsticks, because it's so subtle. No one points it out. No one bothers to say, "Hey, you can use the fork in this way." They just let this guy make himself a total buffoon of himself. And the laughs ensue throughout suburbia. I guess. It was a hard sell, man. It was a hard-ass movie. And we haven't even gotten to the rape yet. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So for those viewers at home, uh, Kat's going to give you a quick history slash feminism lesson about the virgin whore dichotomy. Now, Virgin whore dichotomy is a thing that exists in media, and it's existed as long as women have been able to act in public spaces. And it's very simple. There are two types that a woman can play. She is either the virgin, you know, the maiden, think Disney princess, 
or the whore. Pretty self-explanatory there, but a lot of the Disney witches and whatever are kind of usually implied to be the whores. Anyway, Jake Ryan's girlfriend, who's got the tits, is not the right kind of girl. She is not serious. She likes to party. And thusly, she is a whore and she deserves whatever happens to her. Molly Ringwald, on the other hand, is a virgin. She is perfect, even though she is really not perfect. And thusly, she deserves the prize of the beautiful man, even though the beautiful man has not, like, I would not say is equivalent to her, except for the fact that he is attractive, but we'll get there. So the virgin whore dichotomy is often so deeply ingrained in movies that, like, even Jake Ryan kind of believes in it, where he thinks because Molly Ringwald is, like, pure and also different, but, like, mostly pure, that she is a serious romantic interest. Whereas his present girlfriend, whose name I don't remember, because they barely, like, they throw it out, I think, once or twice, deserves to have her hair cut to be intoxicated in public, to be publicly humiliated by all of her friends, and then to be date-raped and gaslit because she is not the right type of girl because her skirts are shorter than Molly Ringwald's because she has more sexual agency than Molly Ringwald. I'm going to say a statement, and I stole this statement from an Atlantic article, so go read the Atlantic article, but like, I do think it is important. In case you're wondering why it might have taken someone like say, Christine Blasey Ford in the 80s to realize why it took her a while to realize that she was sexually assaulted in the 1980s. Movies like this are the reason. Her sexual assault in this film is a punchline. She deserves it. And she ends up liking it, maybe. Yeah, she likes all, I think I like it. All she does is, is like sex. She doesn't care about the man attached to it. But it doesn't even matter that she didn't consent. It's funny. She's drunk. She made a a mistake and now she deserves to be punished for it with with trauma. But hey, it was fun trauma. Huh? And that made my stomach curdle. Molly Ringwald also wrote a really good piece about this movie maybe like five years ago. Yeah, I read that. It was it was pretty good. So like at least there's I would say post-mortem acknowledgement of its problems. Yeah, it's this movie's and a real hard movie, man. Considering how pretty alright the other two movies were that we watched, like in terms of of racial and sexual politics, I was kind of surprised by how way out there this one was. Have you ever seen what have you heard of the movie like Porkies? Yeah. So this is closer to that era of type of movie. Even though I'm definitely not going to explain this away, like, what happens in this movie is magnificently gross. Mm. Like, I keep bringing up the dialogue between the characters. Whenever Jake and the geek are in the kitchen talking, here's an exchange. I can get a piece of ass anytime I want. Shit, I got Carolyn in the bedroom right now, passed out cold. I could violate her ten different ways if I wanted to. What are you waiting for? There's literally no way explaining around that. Like, that's that's just awful human behavior. And the thing that made me want to tear my hair out is that was actually a really nice, surprisingly untoxically masculine scene before then. Before that, yes. And I do have to say that scene that I mentioned earlier about the dad, where the dad comes downstairs and apologizes 
to Sam for forgetting her birthday and then asks what else is bothering her. And she kind of explains that she she has a crush, but she doesn't want to talk about it. And he says, well, of course it hurts. That's why they call it a crush. Yeah. That I think is the only unproblematic scene in this whole movie. Yeah. And I, I don't think this is based on a comparison. I don't think I was like, well, the rest of the movie was shit. So this was great. I genuinely really liked that scene. No, I like, really it's... like good father-daughter scenes where my favorite part about this one is that he acknowledged his daughters were different without shaming them. Yeah, like it's genuine. He worries empathy. for his daughters for different reasons and in different ways. Yeah, but he does it's... care and worry about both of them. Yeah, his genuine concern, his genuine feelings of a father who can sense that his daughter is upset. He's trying to do and say things that make her feel like she doesn't have to feel as bad as she does. It's funny. I don't know how much he wrote this by himself. I don't know how much Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller was written with other people in collaborations and stuff, but that moment of empathy, you can see that Hughes kind of understands kind of that dynamic in a way, but to have dialogue to where Jake says, she's blitz, she won't know the difference. Like, I can understand being honest. I mean, because, yeah, like, this is a very popular movie where no one was really questioning things at the time. And so you can have this movie as as a sort of benchmark how massively problematic and how unchecked a lot of these sexual situations go on in, in America. It's unreal. It's real, but it's unfathomable how kind of gross the movie gets and how we allowed it to kind of be like a cultural staple. Yeah, and I mean, this was a movie that I had heard of before, and there was one moment, and this is going to sound so dumb, like genuinely this is going to sound really dumb, but it's that scene at the end where she he gives her the birthday cake, cute, I guess, and <laughs> she's leaning over it in that dress. I was just waiting for that dress to go up in flames. I was like, them both dying in a horrifying fire is the best kept secret in cinema. That's what makes this pay off, right? Because I genuinely was like, there has to be something more to it, right? There and there's no, only two minutes left and the credits haven't started. There are no lessons learned in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, yeah. There's no metaphors to how the human condition is made better by treating women with respect and giving them room for their sexual agency. No. No, nope. no, nothing at all. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of over it. So I don't think we agreed on Peter Pan, but 16 Candles, I think we can agree this is a burn the movie problematic. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. Like maybe if, if the person built burning was feeling problematic, just like cut out that little scene with the dad and like use it to inspire your next film project. Yeah, put right. that scene in after school special somewhere. Like, or just give us movies with good supportive male role model figures for women because we don't have a lot of those. Oh, uh, that, that was not a thing in the 80s. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right. My daddy's podcast is called Hyphenation. It's the world's greatest podcast. Barack Obama proofed. On Hyphenation, my daddy talks about all kinds of cool and sometimes I'm on the podcast too. Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves his podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to Hyphenation. So Daddy doesn't get 
He really doesn't get sad though because he has me. Oh wait, please listen to Hyphenation. Thanks y'all. I love the podcast, so please, please, please try to join. But if you know it. Some of the things that kind of come up in Breakfast Club piss me off for a similar reason because it's obvious that all of the men in that movie think that women exist to bear more struggle than they do. And it makes me so angry. Yeah. And so having men who are empathetic to women's struggles and not dismissive of them is quiet and revolutionary. And in a movie that generally treats everybody that's not white men like shit that's kind of breathtaking i don't know how much this kind of explains it all but republicanism what it is now is vastly different than what it kind of was in the 80s but republicanism was really popular in america like i know first buell in the beginning he said i don't believe in isms but you can kind of tell, like, of that era of Ferris wheel will be a Republican. Like, the Zach Morris's of pop culture, like, those guys would be kind of Republican. So I think this is kind of in that vein of where, even in um, a movie like St. Elmo's Fire, where Judd Nelson is, like, I guess in college, he kind of was a Democrat, but then when he graduated and he wanted to make money, he pivoted to, like, the Gordon Gecko like republicanisms or whatever so that very kind of like white male deity getting away with anything i mean ferris bueller like he literally gets away with everything in that movie there's ferris no bueller, movie either ferris bueller if he was real would be president like you cannot convince me <laughs> that he would not have like smarmed and charmed and coalesced his way to the top and that Bueller would not be a household name in the way that, like, Kennedy isn't a political legacy. You know oh, what I mean? He's a finesse king. Like, he's a finesse god. Like, and the thing is, even though he's a finesser, you don't even necessarily know if he's book smart. There's no Oh, he's super, but he's also very earnest. Like, it takes a while for him to get there, but there are a lot of little moments where he gives little asides about, like, Cameron or about Sloane, or even about his sister, where it's obvious that he has crazy observation skills, and he cares a lot, but he also knows exactly how to tailor what he wants to what those other people want, to make it advantageous for mostly him, but honestly both of them, or however many of them there are. I agree with that. He definitely cares about Cameron a lot. I don't know if he can pass a test, though. But <laughs> well, before we pivot to Ferris Bueller, though, before we get to that movie, I like I said, we both agree that Fuck this, this movie in the first first film, and we should do this again sometime. We both agree emphatically this movie can be burned to a crisp. So Is there- save me, save me, Jake Ryan's headshot though, for personal <laughs> reasons. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no literal girl in this movie I, I'm saying that about at all. Is there any other last comment we, we want to leave this, about this disgusting ass movie? Even the outro song it's, got, it's these men singing is some wild lyric you're 16 my teenage queen 
<laughs> even the outro song they couldn't get right. I mean, oh. I don't want to pull the it was a simpler time thing. It was a cocaine like, time. But even like the Beatles in the 60s had a song that's like central hook was she was just 17, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. People are gross. Men are gross. I feel like at least Breakfast Club is self-aware that, hey, these men are gross. Yeah. There's a level of self-awareness in Breakfast Club that is... 16 candles needed. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) Because I honestly think that this movie could be saved if... Uh, Oh, it would have to undergo massive restructuring. If you kept some of the bones, I think it could work. It would just have to be retooled in kind of certain vital areas and be presented with that same kind of polishy bullshit that Breakfast Club had. Nah, I would. I mean, because if if you're changing so much in the movie, it's not at its original core. Then it's not. It's not really a movie. Like if you if you look at Molly Ringwald's character from Sixteen Candles to Breakfast Club, she's virtually. Other other than, you know, the Virgin... Actually, even the Virgin thing, like, she's basically the same person. Like, she's preppy. She is, I guess, more popular in Breakfast Club, but... Yeah, she's significantly more spoiled than she is in Breakfast Club. Like, she's still pretty spoiled yeah. in Sixteen Candles, but I feel like it's... Her dad didn't give her diamond earrings for getting detention spoiled. Yeah, so... Like, there's a degree in Breakfast Club of, like these people are putting their daughter in public school to prove that they don't look down on public school. Mm, they wouldn't do that in the eighties. Like tell me that whole Republican thing was real. They don't give a fuck about proving points. <laughs> then why is she in public school? Cause otherwise it does not make sense. Unless there literally are no private schools in Chicago, which would surprise me. Even in like suburbia, there's always like the upper middle class who it's not like, a lot of kids in the school but there's like enough of them to know that their parents they may not come from like actual wealth but they come from at least a decent amount of money i feel like that was a big multi-steam movies diamond earrings for getting detention hey man i i can't tell people what to do with disposable income man i, I just bought a pair of vans they have Simpsons characters on the side of them. I can't tell people how to spend their money. I mean, I bought a sweater with Creature from the Black Lagoon on it, so. Exactly. Who Who are we? Who are we to judge? Okay, but, like, I also feel like we're not, like, oh, yeah, let me just, like, buy some diamonds real quick. Like, uh, I'm not I'm not a flashy player, but that's neither here nor there. I do think that the the warmth of the characters in Breakfast Club, it separates it from vastly, especially in the 80s, like a lot of those teen movies at that time, because I mean, we're coming from like the Porky generation, from 16 Candles generation. It was a lot of just white men just looking for titties. <laughs> like, that's, like that's basically like where we're coming from. But for Breakfast Club, they're at least trying to give you dimensional characters with actual thoughts and like actual feelings. Can I can I just like come in out the gate with this one? You don't like Breakfast Club? I like it fine. I didn't like it as much as I remembered liking it. And it's pretty much entirely on Bender. 
<laughs> When's the first time you watched Breakfast Club? I watched Breakfast Club for the first time when I was 14. It was on Netflix, and I had just gotten magical streaming Netflix. I was very excited. And uh, I watched it on my computer for school. For school? Well, yeah, not for school, but, like, my computer was for school. And I remember thinking, like, everyone in this movie has issues, but, like, at least they're all interesting. You thought that back then. Yeah, and now I'm like, wow, Bender just sucks. He's not even, like, interesting. He's just kind of the worst. (laughs) So that scene where Claire is like, I'm trying to be honest with you about this because this is how, how it is, and Andy doesn't contradict her, but then the nerd is like you're conceited like what do you know about pressure like at least i feel like he's coming at her with an equivalent argument whereas bender's just like you're a woman and you're garbage and i'm like oh come on like in fairness (laughs) bender's argument is also like you're a man and you're garbage but like bender might just be trash he is trash (laughs) i'm like Look, just because you live in here doesn't give you the right to be a pain in the ass, so knock it off. It's a free country. He's just doing it to get a rise out of you. Just ignore him. Sweets, you couldn't ignore me if you tried. So, are you guys like boyfriend, girlfriend? Steady dates? Lovers? Come on, sporto. Level with me. Do you slip her the hot beef injection? Go to hell! Enough! <laughs> What's going on in there? The only time, there's one line where I was like, all right, Bender, you have made a valid point and I am proud of you, which is he's like, wouldn't I be the ultimate, like, screw you to your parents? And I was like, yes, (laughs) yes, you would be. Well done with your extrapolation, sir. But like, where was that empathy in that group setting? Because literally the last third of this movie is everybody just dogpiling on molly ringwald who hasn't maybe is spoiled but like that is often something that's covering a very deep trauma especially if you're coming from a broken home that hasn't broken yet it's very obvious that she's traumatized as shit um and then they basically just gaslight her into being nicer which is kind of garbage and then she Um. like gives ali shidi a makeover and then, and only then, can Emilio Estevez actually find her attractive. He could only find her kind of attractive before. Hold on, let's back it up. Let's back it up for a second because... It's such heteronormative bullshit. Because when you say there's obvious that Molly Ringwald character had trauma, I didn't necessarily see that. From what of her... I mean, I, I think obviously the point is that they all have something underlying that they're dealing with but they don't necessarily want to address it first until they get into like that one nook and then they're like dumping their emotions out. But even before that, what kind of tells did you see in her to make you think like she was dealing with like actual trauma? Every time she's asked about her home life, she clams up completely or gets incredibly defensive. Except when she kind of parses out these tidbits of information that she's clearly already thought about how to describe. Okay. She also has no actual emotional filter. She goes from like, you know, hey, stop being an asshole to completely broken down almost instantaneously. Mm, they push her. When they they do push her, her but right. she starts crying 
immediately because she knows that if she cries, she gets left alone in certain situations. That's mm, 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 mm. I don't know. If you add that to the context of everything that she's saying about her home life, it's pretty clear that she is tired of being a bargaining chip in her parents' marriage. There's probably something bigger at play, at least in terms of like how they actually treat her as a person, but also that like she is trying to be noticed as a person. So she's probably skipping class so that her parents will punish her, so that they will notice her, so they will have to think about her critically at all. And instead, all she's getting is, you're not a degenerate because you skipped class. Here's some money and a pair of diamond earrings in your lunch bag. Don't tell mom. Tee hee hee. Even still, it's not, I need to now think critically about Claire. It's, I need to think about getting back at my wife. So she feels that she's not even a starring role in her own life. And that's not something you just decide. That's something that you're conditioned about. So every time that she gets upset in a way that's over the top, it's to try to turn the focus back to her, but because she's so used to being ignored or not seen for, for who she is as a person with feelings. Yeah. I would say it's more of that. Like, I don't think she has a problem with like, I think she has a problem not with attention, but with being seen. So I agree as far as far as in that respect. And I was thinking also about (laughs) even the part where you said about, Emilio Estevez not thinking Alishidi's attractive before he does the makeup. Only kind of attractive. Only kind of attractive. I mean... You can be like, ooh, this person is kind of attractive, but like, no. No, I think he was in, he was interested in her. It was, it was building up to the, I guess, that moment, but it's, it's, as far as like the hetero, like you said, the heteronormative sort of like take on beauty i i can concede to that i can concede to at first alishidi like she has the mop going on she doesn't have any makeup she's like very oh no she does shoveling. have makeup she has a well, black dark I, I mean, 1985 like the, goth eyeliner yeah I, I i mean like in the she looks like she's trying out to be in the cure i mean in like in the bro sense of the heteronormative bullshit sense yeah so she doesn't have that going on she's like this like disheveled like mega emo vibes and so it's not until she breaks that conventionally attractive that he can kiss her in public oh well yeah yeah it's not until that happens to where if we're gonna keep going (laughs) like this i'm gonna need more wine Yeah, see, I don't think the majority of what see, you're saying is wrong, though. That's the thing. Seeing this movie for the first time as a 15-year-old, I thought, well, that was an interesting story about some interesting people. Watching this as, like, a slightly more adult person, I was like, wow, this movie is about Bender being this weird, harassing spirit guide. He's the anarchist, yes. Well, he's, he's like, journeys in narcissism. But he's your Sherpa, but he's also abusing you the whole time. Bender can make anyone cringe. I guess for me, this movie tries to cram an awful lot of youthful whimsy and self-discovery and understanding and a bunch of heteronormative bullshit and a bunch of like 
subtlety that's not really subtle. It's more just kind of underdeveloped into, what, an hour and 40 minutes? And a lot of the pasta sticks to the wall. I think I gave it four stars, but not all of it. And the stuff that doesn't stick doesn't just not stick. It actively bounces off and hits you with it. (laughs) What are some more heteronormative things that you spot in the movie? Well, if we're being particularly semantical, every adult woman that we see, and most of them we only see for a second, Brian's mom, I think, is really like the big one. But even Ali Sheedy's mom, you hear for just a second, are like unhappy nags. Uh, even 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 Bender's impression of Brian's mom is an unhappy nag. They don't necessarily describe them as being nags, but for Ali she is this mom, going to be the first time or the attention. last time, Brian? That's not really a nag like that. I wouldn't say that's being a nag. Well, yeah, but okay. Her son was going to kill himself, and she doesn't care about that. But she cares how this is going to reflect on her kids reputation or grades but he didn't he didn't admit that to anyone though he yeah, only... but okay so why do they think he has detention you mean to tell me they're not sending a slip home that says hi your son had a gun in his locker please return yeah. this slip no they knew why he got in trouble they didn't know the reason for him bringing it to school he got in trouble because it shot off in the locker. I'm assuming, and it's not alluded to, and it's only alluded to in the fact in the speech at the end, is that he only alludes to his suicidal thoughts among them. He doesn't tell his mom. He's How turned off do you have to be to not extrapolate that at all? It was a flare gun. Like, if anything, maybe they thought he was going to bring it there to intimidate his teacher. And that's the thing about this movie, like, there's these walls that these kids have built up and not only amongst themselves. I guess then just, all of the parents seem horribly distant and like shitty parents. So like, which cool. is like every 80. Yeah. Which is every, which is a theme of virtually every eighties movie. And that's why the father in 16 candles is he's, he's actually he's, kind of refreshing. He's a, he's the exception. He's not the norm. Like that's kind of a, a thing in the eighties of where, particularly in movies like there's this big disconnect between the generations it's not surprising that this kid will have suicidal tendencies and then not want to tell his parents about it like and that's yeah. that's other that's other characters in the movie too is how even for Emilio Estevez like he's he's like facing this great pressure from his father that he's too afraid to tell him about and even the situation of where well, we kind of agree that for Molly Ringwald's character, she's a pawn for her parents, but her parents don't know this. Like, she's just not telling her, she's not telling her feelings at all. No, no one is telling the feelings until that moment of when they're together. To, to further kind of extrapolate some just, you know, fun heteronormative bullshit while I have you here. It seems like all they do, like all the leverage they really have on Claire is like, you're shallow yeah, like they they don't insult her for anything. Uh, let's not forget that Bender literally sticks his head up her skirt and into her underwear, uh, and that's presented as like annoying, but overall romantic. Um, romantic? No, they don't present. I, it like they that. still no. end up together in the course of three hours. She decides that him violating her consent while she is doing him a favor 
is worth forgetting because I guess he's hot. I don't know. I'm in, not defending their relationship. I'm in, saying in that specific moment, they don't read it as romantic. In the one, no, they don't. But like in the course of, in the greater scheme of things, right? You don't look at it in the moment. You have to look at it in the term of like, this is one nine hour detention session. This is probably six hours in. And by the end of the day, they are in love. Yes, the totality of it, yes, I agree. Anyway, the one thing that I do actually appreciate is that it seems like the one time she was ever able to be herself unrepentantly with no remorse is when she learned how to put on lipstick with her bra when she was, you know, in seventh grade at camp because those girls didn't judge, abuse, or ignore her, unlike apparently literally everyone else in her life. (laughs) So shout out to John Hughes, I guess, for understanding the sanctity of a cabin at a girl's sleepaway camp. To kind of go back a little bit about where you're saying about as far as the only dig at her is that she's shallow. What about that bothers you? Every woman who cares about their appearance is accused of being shallow at some point. We don't learn anything about her besides the fact that she's clearly desperately trying to get her family's attention at all and that she cares about how she looks somewhat. And there are definitely moments where she comes across as socially shallow, but also that is because she is trying to fit into the sect of people that will make her parents proud of her and by extension notice her. The only counter, I think you're, I think you're right. I think everything you're saying about the vanity of what her character is, I think you're on the right path. The only thing I want to question is also the moment that the geek asks her on Monday, are we going to be friends? And then she specifically says no, because you know what our social construct is. In that immediate moment, what is her responsibility as far as, up to that point, you're right. Everything that they're talking about her that's bad is completely hollow. But up until that point, she actually proves that she's kind of a shit too. I don't know, it's kind of a weird time, but I was just wondering um, what is going to happen to us on Monday when we're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So, so on Monday, what happens? Are we still friends, you mean? We're friends now, that is? Yeah. You want the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. I don't think so. With all of us or just John? With all of you. That's a real nice attitude, Claire. Oh, be honest, Andy. If Brian came walking up to you in the hall on Monday, what would you do? I mean, picture this, you're there with all the sports. I know exactly what you'd do. You'd say hi to him, and when he left, you'd cut him all up so your friends wouldn't think that you really liked him. No way. Okay. What if I came up to you? Same exact thing. You are a bitch! Well, Andy doesn't contradict that particularly. And he is not called shallow. He kind of half-asses like, oh, no, like, I'm a nice guy. But, like, and Clara says, and I think she's correct, as soon as he leaves, you're going to trash him to your buddies so you know that you're not really friends. And he can't deny it. And he's not shallow. But she is. I just want to tell each of you that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't and I will not. I think that's real shitty. Your friends wouldn't mind because they look up to us. 
You're so conceited. You're so conceited. You're so like full of yourself. Why are you like that? I'm not saying that to be conceited. I hate it. I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. Then why do you do it? I don't. You don't understand. You don't. You're not friends with the same kind of people that Annie and I are friends with. You know. You just don't understand the pressure that they can put on you. So in that instance, she is shallow for doing the same thing that the stud muffin guy would do, but he is just a guy trying to live his life and get his college scholarship he's just a bro he's literally just a bro and that to me validates this kind of shrill crone idea except ali sheedy because she's actually a basket case is inside every woman and that's implied in 16 candles as well I do not think it is implied in Ferris Bueller's Day Off at all. And that is something that I actually greatly appreciate. I think in Ferris, they don't give Sloane much, honestly. No, they give it all to Gene. But yeah, but before we we get to that movie, though, before before we pivot, because I'm really glad that you're bringing up these points, because, and the reason I'm, I'm trying to dig further is because I think for a lot of the stuff, like, you are on the right path. And I think a lot of the stuff you're talking about, a lot of men who and women who grew up with this movie, they may be too in the forest to see the trees. So I think everything that you're saying is pretty astute. And I think you're on the right path for like, like I said, like a lot of what you're saying. Even Vernon, uh, I'm pretty sure, calls Molly Ringwald's sweetheart at one point. I think... Yeah, yeah, I think and it's in a very condescending like that's funny we said at the same time. Yeah, what do you know, you woman kind of grit to it, and that to me is just like if you're trying to present all of these characters as fair and balanced, which I think is the intention, yeah, then you need to be self aware of the fact that you're giving the men significantly more credit for surviving in a world that's easier for them now maybe in a lot of ways it isn't actually obviously it's implied that both bender and andy's dads are abusive yeah but it seems not impossible that claire and ali sheedy's parents are abusive as well but they're significantly more expected to deal with sorrow than the men are i think the movie as far as trauma from the parents is concerned I think that they want to imply that the sons, they do have it harder. So whether it's Bender being physically beaten by his father, whether it's... Which, why why would you trust Bender at all at past a certain point? Like, I'm still not convinced he ever told a truth. But hold on, but I think the most honest moment for Bender is when he is in the closet with the teacher and then the teacher is like look that's the last time you better. talk all this that's the shit last time you ever make me look you're gonna have to see you hear me in these streets but someday i'm gonna give you someday, one shot and i'm not gonna tell here, you forgot all about this place i'm gonna be there and i'm gonna kick the living shit out of you man i'm gonna knock your dick in the dirt and you see that he kind of cowers away 
Get on your feet, pal. Let's find out how tough you are. I want to know right now how tough you are. Come on, I'll give you the first punch. Let's go. Come on, right here. Just take the first shot, please. I'm begging you. Take a shot right here. Come on. That's what I thought. Like, that's an honest moment from a kid who, he's kind of a poser. Like, he's posing After- like he's big shit, and he doesn't do anything when it's time to do it, though. Like, okay, that's a moment I- of honesty. I read that scene completely differently. Why on earth would he trust Vernon? There is, oh. he, Vernon has given him no reason to think that if he literally punches him in the face, he's going to go to prison. Why on earth would you trust that man after literally every abuse of power we've seen him do in the first 40 minutes of that movie? I've known some kids in my life that if they would have been put in that position, I know 90% of them would have did the exact same thing that Brenda did would just cower and just not do anything. But I do know of like a real small handful of kids that would have tried to like rock this dude's but world. But to me, I thought that Bender is not a poser. I thought it was very much presented as Bender is just smarter than everyone, but he doesn't try. So everyone thinks he's a burnout. As far as aptitude, he's a burnout definitely because one, well, he doesn't he try. Doesn't, he doesn't try, but he's smarter in the sense of like, if Andy was in that situation and Vernon said, take a shot at me and I won't tell anybody, like, it's clobbering time, bitch. Like, Andy's going to knock him over. Bender sees that and goes, mm, I don't think that's what this really is. I think it probably makes more sense tactically for me to not attack him, for him to call me a piece of shit, and then for him to leave me alone for the rest of the day. Even if you think about the fact that when him and Andy got into a fight and he says, I don't want to kill you, man. And then he pulls out the knife like afterwards. That's a lot of poser shit. Like, because if he was really going to stick Andy, when he patted him in the face, the knife would have been ready. When I'm saying that I think Bender is smart, I think I am saying that he is literally specifically posing himself in this way from the get-go to be this complicated, sympathetic lead that's also a nightmare and also a mess. I think he his goal is to get into as much trouble as possible without ending up in prison. How is that not being a burnout, though? <laughs> Well, that's the thing, right? That's how the adults perceive him. That isn't necessarily how he is. Is that not the whole thesis of this movie? You are going to see me in the simplest set of cliches that you want me to, or that you want to, but to some degree, we are all a jock, a princess, a nerd, a burnout, and a basket case. Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. You are correct. I'm just trying to extrapolate from Bender's character. He's a complicated figure. And I started, I guess, this part of this conversation about him going through this trauma. But in in your sense, because you just said that you don't necessarily believe he was telling the truth about him going through that trauma, though. I was trying to make the point that, yeah, he did go through that trauma. And for him to build up those walls, like that was obviously a way of him coping with that trauma. I don't know that that's it. How How can it be both ways, though? If he's lying about getting abused, how is that not being a poser? Basically, the thought process here is that he's trying to build empathy and charisma, and maybe it's not. I don't consider that being a poser. I consider that straight up tactical. Like, he's trying to build a persona, and it doesn't have to be authentic or correct, but he needs people to buy it. So then what's the what's the purpose of him being this supposed badass? Like, if he's if he's not masking some 
like internal thing that he's dealing with with his parents well specifically with his dad and his dad abusing his mother why would he want to wallow in the fact that he's going to spend two months inside of detention why would he want to come off as being a badass broken badasses who are broken toys make rich girls wet (laughs) if you say so (laughs) bored rich white ladies love to adopt projects if you say so you tell me that john bender did not market himself as the most perfect project hey man i i legit nah if if john bender is not a marketing executive by like 1995 in this movie's mythology (laughs) either i owe you 10 bucks or like this movie does not understand what they were selling you know he wrote the f word on his locker right that was his locker yeah i didn't say he was a good person if anything i'm making the argument that he's a worse person than i think we think he is but it's, it's all okay. it's okay to say he's a poser it's okay to i don't say it's think that i think it's a ruse but what's I think the difference what's i the think difference? that saying that he's a poser is implying that he's kind of a weak piece of shit whereas i'm implying no, that he's, a he's hyper, lying yeah he's a poser hyper being in, a lying He's a hyper-intelligent fucking manipulator is what he is. And he's going to take Molly Ringwald for a ride around the block, shake her out for some of her money, and then fucking disappear. Or he's actually going to fall in love with her, get his shit together, and, like, that's going to be it. I didn't... My money's on the first one. I wouldn't have guessed anyone thought Bender was lying about that, but... I don't know that he's lying, but I think that he's conveniently playing up certain aspects. He might be lying. It's hard to tell though. Like I, but I specifically think that he's letting information out in a kind of concentrated manner. Bender, the fifth he knows teller. what he's he knows what he's doing. Because you notice how he always drops it right when s- sentiment is really starting to turn against him. I like those earrings, Claire. Shut up. Are those real diamonds, Claire? Shut up. I bet they are. Did you work for the money? Shut for those earrings. Your mouth. Or did your daddy buy those? Shut up. I bet he bought those for you. I bet those were a Christmas gift, right? You know what I got for Christmas this year? It was a banner fucking year at the old Bender family. I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man grabbed me and said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Okay, so go home and cry to your daddy. Don't cry here, okay? We agree that he's emotionally manipulative. Yes, for sure. We, we agree on that. The question is if he's, if he's being honest about his abuse or not. And at a certain point, I don't think it matters. Someone in the movie true. actually questions it too. Yeah. If it's true or if it's not true, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the way that he's presenting it and selling it. And if everybody buys it, it doesn't matter if it's real. Man, is Bender lying? That may be the title of this episode. <laughs> Did John Bender lie? And according to four BuzzFeed quizzes, I am John Bender. So who the fuck knows, man? Hey, you, know, you know the character because you are. Because I, I look hunky and plaid. You, um, are, you are Janetta Bender. It's like sound advice or whatever. It's like comics, conventions, and cosplay or whatever. It's like ladies' night or whatever. It's like wrestling or whatever. It's like parenting or whatever. It's like anime or whatever. It's like spiritual warfare or whatever. It's like 
great friends, awesome people coming around doing what we do best. Or whatever. You should watch, listen, and follow. Or whatever. It's like a podcast or whatever. Hold on. So are we are we gonna burn? I know you said it's a four star movie. We can still burn four star movies. So are we burning Breakfast Club as well? No. You sure. I don't know why not, but my gut is saying no, so I'm listening to it. What what positive can you extract from Breakfast Club? The face cat is making right now. Let's me know she wants to burn it. She just doesn't want to say she wants to burn it. I know it's meant a lot to a lot of people. Fuck that. What about for you? Um, I don't know. Because it paints the teachers like unsympathetic assholes. It paints the support staff of the school like unsympathetic assholes. You think Carl was unsympathetic? I don't think he's unsympathetic, but he's clearly not on the kid's side, really. No, I think he's, I think he's from, he's honest with the, with, um, with what his face, like he's telling them, like, even when he specifically asks, if you were 16, would you like you? Well, like, yeah, but like, I think, I think he does that, but not in a way that like the kids are ever going to understand. Man, he's so real. Can't take that I, I guess. Burn the movie. You know you want to burn this fucking movie. Do it. Do it. Do it. I, I don't. I, I genuinely don't think I can. Oh. Because I well, here, I do think it provides an outlet for people to talk about their issues that they would largely consider private, and perhaps opens the conversation on on mental health as it pertains to the relationships people have with parents when they're a teenager in a way that is kind of brave and probably was very important to some people. And I don't know that we need it now, but like, I don't think I should be like mad it happened. Even if now it makes me want to tear my hair out. Even if we take away the Bender character for me specifically, if we just look at the jock and the geek, I know for myself, I've never felt as bad as necessarily feeling pressured for my parents, but I can understand the sense of feeling burdened by your father. Like I can There's also that. a lot of good male vulnerability that exists in this movie, which I think in a lot of ways is revolutionary. I just wish it didn't come at the expense of the women. Does that make sense? Like, I I really think that this is, like, a career-defining performance for, like, Emilio Estevez. Like, I think that he does amazing work. But specifically for him, though, I don't think his vulnerability comes at the expense of of Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy. Except, again, he is not shallow in the way that Claire is shallow, even though they're shallow in the same way. That's not his problem. That's a narrative problem. Even if the characters don't exchange each other's suffering for tokens, the narrative kind of does. 
My issue is not with any of the characters. I like most of the characters. I mean, I don't like Bender, but he serves a narrative point. And also the movie would be very boring without him. I understand that. I mean, he's the catalyst to this whole thing. I think that the the narrative itself places a moral judgment on who comes out of this better or worse than anyone else. And I just really wish it didn't do that. I think it's interesting how we, we're kind of viewing this movie because I think there's a lot that we agree on, but I think there's things that we, we don't necessarily agree on, which I definitely don't think is wrong at all. And I do think it is kind of, I don't know, I don't think it's generational or whatever, but I do think that, I think because for myself, particularly from the male characters, I see a lot coming out of them. Even beyond, like I said, Bender, just the geek and the jock. I see a lot coming out of them that I can kind of appreciate. But I can kind of see from another perspective of how their growth, it can be seen at the cost of other people outside of their control. Yeah, and I don't think it's like the character's fault, such as they are. I think it's as the script decides to devote time to them versus other people. Yeah. But that's just my two cents. I still think it's a good movie. I don't know that I'll ever watch it again, but like, that's fine. You said John Ben is a liar. Jesus. That's the, that's the episode. That's you the also episode. said he was a liar. No, I think he's telling the truth about his parents. You I'm, just think no, he's a wimp. No, 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 no. He's not a wimp. Like, I know a lot of teenage guys and maybe I, actually, you know what? Maybe this perspective, because I've seen teenage boys and how they mask a lot of their pain and then manifest into machismo. I've seen a lot of guys to where they've had hurt in their lives and it does manifest in this hard shell where they want to be seen as being tough. They want to carry the knife. They want to carry the gun because they want to have it be this intimidation extension that they themselves don't have within themselves i know dudes that they're not gangsters they're not like thugs or whatever but like if you step to them they'll beat the shit out of you and it's not like they're trying to be like you know hard or whatever it's just like yo dog you're not gonna violate me right now and then i know other guys who they outwardly project that hardness because they they're so scared of being hurt i think bender is a kid that's scared of being hurt and he puts up those walls to whereas yeah he pulled a knife out of Milo Estevez he was not going to use that shit when the teacher challenged him to the private fight he was not going to swing at him I think it's all a mask for the trauma that he feels from his father and I think that it manifests in him trying to be a tough guy and that's why he attacks everyone in the breakfast club because Actually, I don't even know why. Like he, like he, yeah, he's a big asshole. That's that's undisputable. But I think his hurt is manifesting in him hurting other people, and so that's why I do think he's telling the truth. And I don't think he's a poser, but he's not about that life. He has the weed or whatever. He writes the f word on lockers or whatever. Okay, whatever, whatever. That's teenagery bullshit. He's not about that life. I think we both agree that we both agree on that. Mm. But. I do think he's telling the truth about the the hurt that his father gave him and not hurt is manifesting him hurting other people outside of himself. Live from an undisclosed location in a basement in New York City, it's me, Craig, ruler, well, mayor of Dimension X and the producer of the hottest new pod in that dimension or this one, 
The Shredhead Pod, starring the Blasian Betty, aka Google Chrome Dome, aka Ado Nobu Nigga, aka my best friend, Oroku Saki, aka The Shredder. And we've put aside our differences with the Ninja Turtles to be your weekly source of hot takes, sports, and entertainment news. Stay all the way and hear who Saki has named as his Cretan of the Week, and find something valuable in the Shred Commendations. So we'll see you on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever your pods are cast. The Shredhead Pod is a member of the Hyphen Podcast Group. I'm pretty sure I'm actually just Ferris Bueller. I have like a lovely collection of Camerons and some occasional Sloans. And like, I think I'm Ferris Bueller. I'm Cameron, but not. Maybe I'm Charlie Sheen, just in the police station, getting booked on drug charges. I don't know. So Ferris Bueller, your favorite movie of all time. Uh, It's definitely not my favorite movie of all time, but it's up there. So this is just a dumb, funny story that I have, and I feel like you might appreciate this. The first time I saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it was on Nickelodeon. (laughs) And they edited a bunch of it out. I bet they did. And I actually found it on VHS tape that we had recorded off of Nickelodeon. And it's still really solid. Yeah, like there's... Like, they they even edit out Donkashane. When Copyright. he sings it on the float, it just cuts straight to twist and shout. Copyright situations. Copywriting. I, I also think it might be like an ethical question of trying to explain to like a six-year-old the idea that I recall Central Park in fall when you tore your dress. What a mess. I confess. <laughs> you know, like that's a lot for Nickelodeon at like 6 p.m. on a Friday. That was prime time hours, babe. That was that was um, Snick hours, almost. Yeah. So then I bought it on DVD from my local like record and DVD store. And I brought it to a sleepover as like a 10-year-old. And I was like, guys, it's going to be fun. And then I was like, they say shit a lot. I mean, just, that'd, that'd be fun to me. Yeah. Anyway, so short version. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Very good. Medium version. God, they swear a lot more than I always remember. I don't remember Ferris drawing titties and Microsoft Paint. Yeah. Yeah. He was on the Nickelodeon website. I think that Ferris Bueller's Day Off may be my favorite and perhaps just canonically the best use of fourth wall jokes. Hi, Cameron. You comfortable? Hi, Sloan. No. (laughs) What are we going to do? The question isn't what are we going to do, the question is what aren't we going to do. Don't say we're not going to take the car home. Please don't say we're not going to take the car home. Please don't. If you had access to a car like this, would you take it back right away? Neither would I. Oh, yeah. Because even Deadpool... Deadpool is... It it gets repetitive. I enjoy those movies, but I do think that... Everything I've seen after Ferris Bueller that has more than one fourth wall break feels derivative of Ferris Bueller. No, yeah, it is. is that, and that's shitty. Yeah. And at least Deadpool is smart enough to draw attention to it 
and is like, see, we know you were thinking about Ferris Bueller. We were thinking about it too. So like, at least then you feel like you were kind of in cahoots together, which is like a cheap shot, but I'll take it. I just unrepentantly really like this movie. Of the three, it's definitely the lightest, but in a good way. Except at the same time, like, some of the shit that's in there is fucking horrendous. Like, pretty much everything about Cameron is quietly heartbreaking. (laughs) You mean the lack of relationship with his father? Or his mother. (laughs) His massive depressiveness. Right, and like... I really think Alan Ruck, who was on my favorite TV show to watch when I was homesick from school, Spin City. Wow. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't expect you to get... You watched Spin City. Damn. Yeah. I liked the episode where Michael J. Fox fucked Heidi Klum, and they filmed it like the moon landing. But anyway, I think Alan Ruck is a fucking powerhouse in this movie. Oh, no. He's great. I feel like the movie at some points is more about him than Ferris. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Ferris is a framing device for Cameron. Yeah. But, like, every time you see Alan Ruck, he is acting with everything. And I mean, like, even that space behind his eyes looks different every movie or every, like, scene. (laughs) And, like, when he's actually starting to have fun, you see this softening that's so different than everything you've seen until now and it's incredibly charming like when he's yelling at at ferris on the float like you're crazy but like you can tell he's kind of loving it it's really the first time that he (laughs) is having fun yeah oh yeah definitely and the only time you see something similar again is right after ferris says well cameron you killed the car (laughs) and you see his whole face is stone-faced but he has those soft eyes that he had when he was actually having fun with his friends yeah and so from going to him kind of being soft-faced and stone-eyed to stone-faced and soft-eyed it's a really subtle acting choice that lands this whole fucking film like let's be honest without cameron i would say there's you lose probably 80 percent of the heart of this movie shit i think it's more than that without without cameron this is a boy on the run from his dean basically yeah and there's no joy yeah i think the first maybe half an hour of this movie where he's convincing his parents he's sick he's explaining to his parents he's sick he's talking about what he's doing now you see him try to you know bueller bueller he explains what he's doing. He takes the shower. He, you know, is playing clarinet. He's learning to dance, whatever, right? And like all those little moments. I think they might be some of the best comedy filmmaking I've ever seen. And then to cut from that bright colored chaos, masked in kind of fake sickness, to this very real sickness that's being made more real by the darkness of like the family home. There are no colors in Cameron's room. Yeah, it's very 80s cold, that movie. And, like, the only color we really see Cameron associated with at any point is red. Which, he should be wearing a Blackhawks jersey, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, whatever. It matches the car. At the end of the day, the great love story of this movie is actually the breakup of Cameron and the car. 
And I think it also, even just the jersey being not a Chicago jersey, I think it's more even kind of, I guess, thinking about it like a bit deeper, probably more deeper than it needs to be. It just kind of tell you how a state of mind of where if you're in Chicago, like you're rooting for the Blackhawks, like you're not rooting for the Red Wings, but Cameron is so kind of his brain is just so drift. Yeah, he's just so scrambled that it doesn't really register how different. I guess, Five bucks says one of his parents is a Red Wings Blackhawks fan. Oh, no, yeah. is a Red Wings fan, and they oh. just bought him the jersey and he wears it. Like, because uh, that seems to be so much of the implication. Maybe you know, like, look at what he wears compared to what Ferris wears. He's wearing suspenders and a belt. <laughs> That's a lot of like added security. The for 80s. pants the 80s um, were a weird time <laughs> which don't get me wrong by the way like if a guy came pick me up for a date dressed as cameron like well, i go on a date with someone wearing a hockey jersey i mean no but like suspenders and a belt okay um, yeah when he took the jersey off yeah and he had like the little medical yeah. shirt underneath yeah the digi cheetah print vest that ferris wears yeah no I want everything Ferris Bueller wears in this movie. Hilarious. Even down to the the shoes. I really want a pair of white loafers. I always have. I also own a very similar jacket to Sloan Peterson's. It's not pure white. It's an off-white, but I love With it. With the fringes? Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Who's the best dressed in the movie? That's a tough question. Well, hear <laughs> me not, out. Yes, it is. Sloan's style is not mine, but she's really good at what she's doing. I could say the same for Cameron. At the end of the day, right, I would say it's kind of a toss-up because if I were in high school, I would probably be doing theater and dance, which is kind of what Jean is dressed like she's doing. She's got the leggings on. She's got like a, it, it might even be a leotard with like, you know, a sweater and a shirt over it. Which if I were in high school in the 80s, like, I would be a theater kid. I would have a leotard on in a way that would be safe to wear to school. I would say the answer is Jean. It's Jean. If I had to pull an outfit that I would wear tomorrow, I would get me some tailored slacks, a white t-shirt, and that vest, and, like, (laughs) that jacket. Let's go. Uh, Jean also has the best sunglasses. Change my mind. That's why it's Jean. And she has the appropriate car to go with her outfit. It's Jean. And she's got good hair, too. It's Jean. It's always been Jean. That's what the movie wants us to know. It's not really Ferris. It's Jean. It's always been Jean. There's definitely part of me that thinks that Cameron just straight up hallucinated Ferris. And that Ferris isn't real. Yeah. Ferris is his id. <laughs> well, yeah, just that, like, he's always looking for a reason to do the Ferris Bueller's Day Off thing. He has the, the girl that he wants. He makes up this man that's dating Mia Sarah that convinces him to be courageous. He drives the car that he wishes he had the balls to steal. Yeah. I mean, you're you're doing yo. This is this is a fifty point performance tonight from you. Know that right? Like you're hitting from half court tonight. Just so you're aware, I'm noticing this shit, man. Oh, am I out in fine form? Is that what's happening? You are. You're the MVP. You're the finals MVP tonight, by the way. 
there's absolutely part of me that thinks that's true. And then there's also part of me that's like, God, I hope not. Because I value their friendship so much. Even Sloane, who's like the girlfriend, like she doesn't have a lot to do or really work with. She and Cameron have a different relationship than Ferris and Cameron, than Ferris and Sloane. I like that ecosystem. And I hope that that is a real ecosystem. But did you notice Cameron and Sloane, at one point, they're holding hands? Did you notice that? They did. Hey, I mean, Fight Club. (laughs) 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 Ferris Bueller Club. I mean, (laughs) The Day Off Club. (laughs) But then Uh, that would make sense why, like, when Ferris is sick, it, like, escalates almost comedically quickly. Yeah. Because it's not real. Yeah, like, he has a fucking mannequin in his bed. (laughs) Okay, in fairness, you cannot tell me that Ferris Bueller does not have, like, the ideal 80s kid bedroom with all the posters, the super cool, like, curtains that are made of, like, flags tied together. Oh, yeah, he's definitely a top five 80s bedroom, definitely. as, As a kid, I was like, if I had the rig Ferris Bueller had, I could get away with fucking anything. You know how some kids were like, I wanted to be on the Goonies. Like, I want to be Ferris Bueller. Still. I don't want to be short round. I don't want to go on an adventure with Indiana Jones. None of that shit. No. I don't want to be a member of the Goonies. None of that. Fuck that shit. If there's a teen movie to live. I don't want to be part of the Monster Squad. Nothing. I want to be Ferris Bueller. Okay, I guess we should probably talk about Jeffrey Jones real quick. Oh good. Because he is, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I don't... Unfortunately for him as a person, like, because he sucks. <laughs> yes. He's very good in this movie, and I hate it. <laughs> I mean, we can't appreciate the buffoonery he's bringing to the screen. Him and his secretary are like a, a dream comedy team. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think we maybe could have gotten away with them if it wasn't for the fact that at the very end of the movie, he gets on a school bus full of children. Yeah. Like, even then, he works in a school. Like, I think it, it would have... Well, yeah. At one point, he's like, who's Sloan Peterson dating? Like, it's it's very, like... Yeah. Very gross, yes. Yeah. I, I can't help but notice that his, the attraction he was a part of at Walt Disney World closed down within six months of his conviction. A lot of his physical comedy, coupled with his like, <laughs> is very funny. And it feels like I would kind of describe it as one foot off the ground, where a lot of it is very grounded, but it's still off center. Yeah. It, it is the exact opposite of Ferris Bueller, where it seems like nothing can stop him and he can get away with anything. Everything is stopping Rooney, but he, except for him, he won't stop. <laughs> yes. From the last two weeks, have we just learned that the 80s were just a problematic ass time in America? Have we just, have we realized that? Yes. I don't know that it's new. Oh, hell no, son. Like, no. this is not a hot. This- take is really not it is so not i would say that your mileage may vary on how much his being in this movie spoils the movie for you 
for me it didn't it didn't spoil it but i have to preference i watched it before like all that shit happened with him so yeah so i saw beetlejuice for the first time after i knew everything that had happened and i won't talk about it a lot here because i know we're planning a mr the juice episode coming coming soon plug but like that definitely colored how i saw that movie oh yeah in you know i don't think it's a that's a negative to the film i actually think it might have increased my enjoyment of it somewhat in a weird way (laughs) because i just went in hating the dad Oh, yeah. The movie didn't have to convince me to hate the dad. Didn't at all. Yep. I mean, for me, at, at this point, I found it incredibly cathartic to watch him get mauled by a dog twice <laughs> and kicked in the face by Jennifer Grey. He come, deserved Come watch no, him get the shit kicked out of him. The movie. He deserved no W's in this movie. He deserved all the L's. For me, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is not only the story of like a great but sympathetic con man in a lot of ways it's also a story of a really powerful like sense of self which cameron discovers as well as a a set of really interesting and beautiful relationships i wonder being a part of our conversation about breakfast club i do wonder if sloan was like a worsely written character or she was fulfilling some of those tropes we were talking about for like the the male gaze and heteronormative mm-hmm. tropes if she was feeling those do you think that would have depleted your response to cameras emotions I, I guess it depends who's doing it does that make sense if the idea is that rooney is being creepy versus ferris or cameron i think would would change the answer dramatically okay. you know if the idea is that she's just like the only reason that ferris likes her is that she's pretty and will go along with his schemes as opposed to the fact that he seems to think that she, there's really something in there even though we don't really see it that would change my answer versus like just the adult administration seeing her as just sweetheart because i feel like cameron is a bit of an amalgamation of the geek and the jock from breakfast club not necessarily you know he's obviously not a jock but kind of the feelings of pressure from the parents mm-hmm. not knowing how to deal with it but then finding like like a cathartic with being with people that he loves and he trusts i and think he thinks that sloan peterson is the most beautiful woman in the world i really do i also think that he is grateful to spend time with people who care about him as him. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. There's nothing he can't handle. I can't handle anything. School, parents, future. Ferris can do anything. I don't know what I'm gonna do. College. Yeah, but to do what? What are you interested in? Nothing. Me neither. (laughs) You're crazy! Yeah. And even if Sloane Peterson is the most beautiful girl in the world and he's in love with her or whatever, and you can kind of read that in if you want to, the fact that she cares for him at all when it seems like the only other person who's ever really cared for him is Ferris, I think says a lot more about her yeah. and why Ferris likes her and why Cameron likes her than any kind of romantic feelings he might have for her. 
Oh no, yeah. I was gonna say, so you know how basically people use friend zone in the sense of how obviously this this guy is not honest about his feelings with the girl, so he never makes it known and then he feels like he's quote unquote trapped. I don't think Cameron has those feelings at all. I think he does love Sloan, but I do think it's in the same way that he loves Ferris. Yes. If if your theory is incorrect, if they and they are two separate people, I do think that he does love them as both as being like these great friends that he has. Yeah. Now that said, if Cameron spent the whole movie like aggressively lusting after Sloan. Yeah. Or like you know we trying to split them up. Stairs. Yeah. A lot of rumors like Ferris on how to treat you right and all that shit. Yeah. Then the quiet revelation of Cameron would be lost. Oh yeah. yeah the quiet revelation of I don't need to be jealous of Ferris because he's playing baseball and I'm playing soccer and I need to stand up for myself because you know my parents don't understand and they'll never understand because I'm basically Molly Ringwald in the Breakfast Club to them and all of those layers would be lost if he spent the whole movie trying to get in Sloane's pants. Yeah. I also just have to say across the board, though, I think all three of these movies have pretty good soundtracks. Oh, yeah. So good on you, John Hughes. You made a nice mixtape. <laughs> From these three movies, is that the best thing we can extrapolate? I would say that I think John Hughes has a very good understanding of how specifically difficult it was to be a teenager in the 1980s. Bong bong. Yes, I agree now is that the same as it is now no is that okay now no but i think that he grasped in a way that is hard to grasp as an adult a lot of the specific intricacies of how teenagers are and how they think and what they think is funny yeah without feeding into well this is what my parents want. Oh, these kids aren't cool. They're kind of square. <laughs> you know, like every character in his movies, even if they're not the coolest, right? Has something to offer. Yeah. And I think that's unique. Do I wish there was a little less sexism? Hell yeah. I think Breakfast Club could be a much stronger narrative if it was like 30% less like reinforcing heteronormative tropes. I think the the dude villain that is all surface and truly vain, I don't think those shits really kind of started to appear until like I guess maybe pretty in pink when that was um the sex god of the eighties. James Spader. Yeah. I think Spade Dog was in uh Pretty in Pink. I'm pretty sure it was an asshole in Pretty in Pink. But yep, I was right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was right. <laughs> oh man. When, when go- I like kind of resent how dreamy he was, bro. More he, than kind of. He had the magic stick. Yes. I don't know what's going on with his hair in this promo art, but I'm not mad at it. What's going on with John Cryer's hair? The cocaine '80s man. Find Cat at CatChinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Cat, K A T, and 
Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseasmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E-M-A-R-C-R-O-B.wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a Hyphen Podcast production. Are you not entertained?